the seminary, so I feel like I should start with a joke. I think that's just, it was, you know, jokes 101, starting sermons 101. But uh, so this is it's, it's just a joke. These things obviously would, would never happen. So Tom Brady's in heaven, and, um, okay, Tom, Tom Brady's in, in, in heaven, and, and uh, he, he gets there, and, and Jesus is going to walk Tom to his, to his home, right? His, his heavenly dwelling place, all right? And so they, they walk up to it, and it's a, it's a, it's a nice house. It's, it's pretty good. Tom's like, okay, my earthly one was a little bigger. The pool is larger, but, but this is good. You know, there's a, there's a, a, a Patriots flag, and, um, and he, was, he was happy. But then he looks across the street, and he sees just the most massive home that he could ever have imagined. And there's courtyards, and there's towers, and there's, it's, just, it's just magnificent in every way. And there's a big, big Chiefs flag right there in the, front, in, in, in the front yard. And there's a statue of Patrick Mahomes, like, you know, just in that, in that thing. And Tom's like... I see my house. I said, is that, he goes, is that, is that Patrick's house? Jesus is like, no, 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 no. That's my house. <laughs> Jesus is a Chiefs fan. Um, it's funny because it's true. Um, with that, let's get to the word quickly. Um, open your, your Bibles to Jonah chapter 1. We're going to begin in, in, in the, the very first very, or I guess the, the very last verse of chapter 1, and then we're going to go through the entirety of, of chapter 2. I'm going to look at the clock to make sure that I don't go too long. Okay, got it. Let me read that for us. Uh, if you have a, a black chair Bible, I think it's uh, 774. I believe that's correct. Let me read that for us. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pits, O Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Let me pray for us. Oh, Father, you are good, and you are gracious, and you are kind. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that, we, that you give us another opportunity to examine it together again. Uh, you, you continually let us come back Sunday after Sunday, Father. And so um, I, I pray today would be glorifying to you, beneficial for us, Father, and uh, we know that that's uh, completely a work of your hand alone. So would, would you help us? In your name we pray. Amen. So in our passage this, this morning, uh, we will read of, of Jonah going on a, a spiritual journey. All right? we, we know that he is on a, on a Clark Griswold-esque kind of you know, physical journey. If you've ever seen some of those, those movies of Clark Griswold, there's some wild stuff that happens on Jonah's physical journey, there's obviously some wild things that happen that we may not be familiar with, okay? Um, I, I enjoy fishing. I've never been fishing in that way, where I was the bait. Um, but 
But uh, so his, his physical journey might be a little odd, but his spiritual journey is all too common. All too common. So we're going to examine Jonah's path to repentance. And in so doing, we'll see how people called by God can and should respond to him when we run from him, when we disobey him, when we refuse to be in God's presence. So number one, repentance begins by hitting bottom. Between verses 15 and 17 of, of chapter 1, where is, where is Jonah? What's, what's going on in, in Jonah's life between verses 15 and 17 in chapter 1? Bueller. He's in the ocean. Is he, is he you, know, you know, Phelps, you know, is he swimming like Phelps to, to shore or what's, what, what's going on? He's drowning. He is, he is drowning. Look at uh, verse, verse 2. He says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. This is a panicked man. The, at the end of verse 2, out of the belly of Sheol I cried. Sheol is the realm of, of the dead. This man is thinking that he's about to die. Go to verse 5. The waters closed in over, my, over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Finally, verse 7, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. The language here is describing Jonah drowning to death. Seaweed is wrapped around his head. He, he's, he writes as, as if he was touching the bottom. He said that, that he was down to the, the base of the mountains where the mountains are in, the very bottom of the ocean, and the, and the bars of the land were wrapped around him. You can imagine that his lungs are burning, his eyes are burning. He had probably been trying to swim and get to the, the surface of the water. That's not working well. So he's exhausted and he's thinking that his life is about over. What's important to know, I think, in this, at this point, is that right at that moment, Jonah is getting exactly what he wanted. Look at verse 4, chapter 2, verse 4. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. This verse is incredibly similar to what uh, the author of Jonah describes in chapter 1, verse 3. Look at that real quick. Chapter 1, verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Even in, in verse 10 of chapter 1. Look at that. He said, Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Jonah, in, in verse 9, uh, when the sailors came to him and they, and they said, Who are you? What's going on? Why is this happening to us? And Jonah said, Well, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear God. He's the God that made the sea, and he's the God that made the land. He created those things, and that's who I'm running from. And the sailors are like, Whoa, whoa, whoa. I love how, how the, the, the interpretation here says, what is it that you have done? Exclamation point. These guys are thinking, so what you're saying is your, your God created the, the land that, that you ran to job on, and your God created the sea that you're on now that's going to kill us, and you're trying to run from this God across things he's made. Joe Duh. That's a... Uh, that's kind of what they're, what they're, they're thinking in that, in that moment. But here's the thing, and we, we say this, this kind of thing often at New City. We say, sin makes you stupid. Right? 
It does. Sin, sin makes you stupid. Sin clouds our judgment at times. Our sinful desires, our fleshly worldview cause us to forget, to ignore, to take for granted very basic biblical truths. Even as basic as, you know, don't expect to win a game of hide-and-seek with God, right? That's, that's not going to work. Uh, Jonah should have known that from Adam and Eve. Obviously, he didn't watch enough game film on that. That didn't go well either. But, but God allowed Jonah to get exactly what he wanted. He wanted to be away from the presence of God, and that's what he, what he got. And now you may be asking at, at, this, at this moment, how, do we, how can someone possibly be out of God's presence, right? God's everywhere. No one can be out of his presence. It's a really good question. Thanks for asking that. Um, here's, here's kind of a, an, an analogy here. So if, if my, my wife and I, if, if we go to a, a restaurant, and we're, we're sitting at a booth, um, it, it's crowded, there's lots of people in there, all those other, other people are in Elizabeth's presence, right? Because Elizabeth is in there with all these people, and all, everyone has the, has the honor to be, you know, around her to some degree. And, uh, but here's, here's the thing. They are in her presence. But I'm in her presence in a different way. Because she's looking at me. She's talking to me. She's paying attention to me. No one else. So we know that God is, is everywhere, but there is a difference between God's omnipresence and God's physical, tangibly felt, specific presence on those he loves and those who seek him. Consider with me a second. Go to, go to Psalms, the book of Psalm. Um, we're going to start in Psalm 16. Here's a verse that we sing often. Go to verse uh, 16, verse 11. You make known to me the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Can you kind of hum that tune that, that we sing here at New City? Go to chapter 21. Go five chapters over. Psalm 21. Go to verse 6. For you make him... Most blessed forever, you make him glad with the joy of your presence. Go one more. Go to Psalm 84. Love this one. Another song. Psalm 84, uh, verse 11. Sorry, verse 10. 84.10, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. David is saying he would rather be the guy that just opens the door and let other people in and maybe just getting a little, a little whiff, a little glimpse of God's glory, of God's presence when the curtain opens and people walk in. He would rather be that guy than someone who is dwelling in prosperity in the tents of wickedness. He would rather just get little glimpses of God's presence than be away from it forever. Verse 11, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. In God's presence, there are feelings of delight and happiness and peace and safety. 
Have you ever felt God's presence before? Have you ever been in a situation, maybe in a worship service, or a time of prayer, where you just felt like God was just right there, right next to you? There is a difference between God being everywhere, generally in every location, and God's gaze and his attention and his, his qualities of mercy and compassion and provision being specifically on, on you. Just like there's a difference between seeking him, crying out for him to meet you, to ask him, asking him to fill you with his spirit, wanting to obey him in every way. There's a difference between that and being like Jonah and fleeing fleeing from God's presence, actively trying to do what no person can and hide from God. And we think of Jonah between verses 15 and 17, where he's drowning, he's about to die, he's getting everything that that he wanted, he's out of God's sight, as we read in verse 4. And that's why... It's, it's interesting, he, he waits so long to pray. He could have prayed when God said, hey, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach to those pagans so I don't destroy them. He could have said, God, wait a second, that's really hard for me. They're a violent people, I don't want to die, and I really love is my, my people Israel. I love the success that's kind of going on in that moment. They, they were spiritually bankrupt, but they were materially and geographically expanding, and wonderful things were going on. Jonah was saying... He could have prayed and be like, I love this, but God, change me. Make, give me a heart that is soft for these, these pagan people like your heart is. He didn't do that. He could have prayed when he got into the boat and this divine storm where, where the, the language in chapter 1 is almost like God is like balling up big things of, of wind and like throwing 90-mile-an-hour fastballs right at, this, at this, this ship. He could have prayed at that moment, but he doesn't. Why? He doesn't want to be in God's presence. When we pray, you cannot help. We cannot help but acknowledge the fact that we need God's presence. When you pray, you want to talk to God and you want God to hear and respond. That's an acknowledgement of, God, I, I need your attention. I need your gaze to be on me. That's one reason why it's so important to be a praying church, a praying person. You can't want to be in God's presence and then wholeheartedly, seriously pray for bogus things, things that are the antithesis of who God is and, what, and who his character is. You can't do that. Prayer changes us. So we see in, in Jonah's life. When Jonah was about to die, in the, in the literal last moments of his life, when he was at the bottom of himself with nowhere else to go, that's when the lights came on. And he realized that being, in the, being outside of God's presence to being out of his sight was the absolute last place that he could ever want to be. And it was only at, at that moment, when he was at the bottom, where his spiritual deliverance was possible. And it's at that point with us that we can understand that when we have no place else to turn, that's when we cry out to the Father. Even sinners do that. Even people who don't know the Lord do that. God, if you get me out of this situation, I'll never do this again. We've heard of people praying that. We see it in movies and shows all the time. I know it's, I, I know it's true. 
It's just a natural inclination of image bearers of God to know that, hey, when, when we're at the end of ourselves, we have a good and a gracious God that we can call out to. Repentance is acknowledging that you are heading away from God and his will for your life, actively turning back, running towards him, leaving everything behind. Jonah had to almost die before he got to a place of repentance. So let me ask you, what would, what would hitting bottom look like for you? What relationship would have to end before you realize that you know, the acceptance and the love that you were seeking from someone was never going to, was never gonna be enough? What uh, sin would, would need to be exposed before you wholeheartedly lay that before the foot of the cross where Jesus died to pay the penalty for that sin? You know, what amount of, of power and pleasure and prestige would have to be stripped away before you beg for the Father's presence in your life, before you mourn the absence of that presence? Is it going to take something like that happen to you? Is God going to have to put you in a Jonah situation where you are experiencing physical agony, emotional agony, spiritual agony before you cry out to him? And if you are thinking right now of, of things in, in your life, habitual things, hidden things, things that you know are keeping you from the will of God and from the command of God, right now, Repent. Don't even listen to the rest of this. I, I, there's there's going to be 20 minutes left. Don't, 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 don't do that. You have the time right now to be alone with your thoughts and with your God, to be in his presence. Cry out to him in your brain. Don't yell out, please. Um, but be in his presence. Repent of whatever those things are. Or, don't. But if that's the case, I would prepare yourself. I would advise you to be prepared. Um, I would stay away from bodies of water. I wouldn't even take a bath if I were you. Because God is too good to let you wallow in your own unrepentance and sin. God loves you too much to allow you to be away from his presence. And he's going to do, as we'll see, what he needs to do to get his people back to where they need to be. And this is a good thing. So number one, repentance begins by hitting bottom. Number two, repentance proceeds by God's plan and purpose. Repentance proceeds by God's plan and purpose. You know, often, whenever we think of, of Jonah, whenever you think of Jonah, what's the first thing that comes, comes to your brain? What? A fish. A whale. Yes. This, this, uh, this big fish, and that's perfectly natural. It's an, an amazing thing that God does. But don't get caught up on that one miracle, that vine little act of, God, of God's sovereignty. Um, consider it just a Mediterranean Uber. All right? It's, it's aquatic Mediterranean Uber. That's it. God downloaded the app, found the nearest driver, and said, go. That's, that's all, all, all it is. All right? All um, right? 
Because the, the, the picture that the author of Jonah is, is painting is that from beginning to end, God is working throughout the entire storyline, doing whatever he needs to do to get Jonah where he wants Jonah to be. Go to uh, chapter 1, verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. The ship threatened to break up. Um, go to uh, verse 7 of that same chapter, chapter 1. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. We don't, that's, that's not just by luck. That's not just fate. The, the writer of Proverbs in Proverbs 16, 33 says... The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. What a wild verse. I admit my, my wife and I play, play Yahtzee quite a bit. Can't beat that girl. And after I read that verse, I was like, oh, all right, there's some divine stuff going on. I, my, my, my suspicions were correct. I knew it. We know verse 17 that we read, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish. Three days and three nights. Uh, the last verse in chapter 2, when the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. And not to be a spoiler alert, but in chapter 4, God's going to create like this weird plant to come up and grow over Jonah to protect him from the heat. Then God's going to appoint a worm to eat that plant and kill it. And then God's going to appoint an east wind to blow and like torment Jonah. From beginning to end, God is in control he wasn't shocked by the fact that Jonah ran. In fact, it was ordained so that God could get Jonah in the boat, in the water, into a place of repentance, in the fish, and then in Nineveh to preach. From beginning to end, God is working through this thing and sovereignly did that. And, and Jonah was well aware of, of this. Go to, look at verse 3 in chapter 2. For you cast me, for you cast me into the deep. And the heart of the seas and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. The last part of verse 6. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Jonah is recognizing, recognizing God's intention and his sovereign interactions throughout this entire story. All right. So I'm going to make a big, a big statement here. I wish we had time to get, get into it more deeply because it's a beautiful truth, um, but, but we don't. Uh, I wrote up some small group questions. When you meet this, this week, when you go to your, your city group, uh, you'll have some time to kind of interact with those things. I hope it'll be a, a fruitful, a good conversation for you. So here's, here's the, big, the big statement. And maybe this will be very easy um, for you to, um, to, to agree with, and your spirit will be just praising God for it. It, it was a little difficult for, for me. Um, but here we go. Here's a big statement. Everything that occurs in this world and in the next happens because of God's sovereign decree. The Westminster Catechism, the third chapter, the very beginning of the third chapter of the Westminster Catechism, explains it like this. God, from all eternity, did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. To put it in a little easier phrasing, before anything was created, God, by his own wisdom and free will, ordained everything that happens. Our first response should be like, wait a second. 
that's hard. There's a lot of pain in my life, and there's a lot of evil in this world. What's going on here? That's a very natural thing. But this truth should give us ultimate peace and complete confidence because we can be sure that since God ordains every single thing that happens, we know that everything that happens is therefore a purpose and therefore is not meaningless. What was the purpose of getting Jonah into the water? So he would repent and serve God faithfully. When he was drowning, I don't, I don't think that Jonah was thinking to himself, oh, yep, here it is, drowning, okay, uh, cry out to God, and uh, three, two, one, fish, here we go. This is, a, this is something that is, that is difficult for us to, to grasp. But he cried out for help, and God saved him. And it, it's interesting that it wasn't until Jonah was in the fish, in a place of solitude, in a place of darkness, in, in a place of, of happiness to be, to be saved. Because his prayer that he prays, this is not a lament of God, please free me from, from this fishy prison. It was, a, it was a, a shout of praise. Thank you, Father, I was about to die, and now I am still alive. So he's alone, and he's in this tight, cramped thing with nothing but himself and his God. And it's when he's in that moment, that's when he realizes, oh, it was your billows, your waves. You threw me into the water, and you're going to bring me up. Everything that happens has a purpose and is not meaningless. This means that your chronic illness is not meaningless. Your singleness is not meaningless. Your tough job. Anybody not like their job? I'm there with you. Not meaningless. Your sin is not meaningless. Paul was well, well aware of this. I mean, 1 Corinthians 12, you don't have to turn there, but he says, So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger from Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Whatever this thorn was, whatever it was, and there's lots of different um, guesses about what it could be. It doesn't matter. It was something Paul didn't want. And he asked God to take it away. God said, nope, that's got a purpose. That's a meaningful thorn in your side. Whatever you're going through, it may seem like there is uh, not a lot of meaning. But you can rest in your sovereign, good God who is kind and who loves you supremely. And this should give us hope and peace, but it should also lead us to re- repentance. And here's, here's why. God's sovereignty should lead us to repentance uh, because God has shown us his unchanging character. Look what uh, Jonah says in verse 2-7. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came into your holy temple. He says he remembered the Lord. Did Jonah, did this prophet called by God, did, this, did Jonah forget that God existed? No. What he forgot was how good his God was. What promises 
that God had promised him and his people. He forgot the character of his God. But in his distress, he remembered that. He remembered that as God is gracious. That as God is merciful. He remembered that as God is powerful to save. He remembered that God could be trusted. Um, and in Romans 2, 4, Paul writes, Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to what? Lead you to repentance. God is absolutely holy and he is supremely just, but he is also patient and he is also kind and his heart is for the people he created. Uh, I love Ezekiel 33, 11. You don't have to, you don't have to turn there. I'll just read it for us. Um, God talking to um, his, his prophet wanting him to say to Israel, he says, say to them as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that wicked turn from their ways and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die? God's heart is that he wants people to turn from their evil ways. He wants them to repent and come back into his presence. So his sovereignty leads us to repentance because we know that this all-powerful, all-wise God is also kind, is also patient, and is for us. How can we not want to turn to that God? How could we not want to be in his presence? Why do we refuse to pray? God's sovereignty also leads us to repentance because God has shown us our glorious future. And the Bible is, is so clear as to the inevitable final state of every single one of God's elect. I'm going to read three, three verses for us. Ephesians 1, 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to what? The image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And lastly, 1 Corinthians 3, 16, it says, Do you not know that you are a temple of God, the Spirit of God dwells in you? So, here's the, here's the idea. We are going to be holy and blameless before God. We are, God is going to make us into a perfect representation of his Son, whom he loves. And it's going to be so good, actually, that God is going to indwell us. He's going to fill us with his Spirit and be with us. C.S. Lewis, the brilliant C.S. Lewis, uh, explains this, the, you know, sanctification, the process of us becoming more and more like Jesus every single day by God's grace. He explains it in this way. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he is doing. He is getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. And you, you knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you are not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. He's throwing out a new wing here. He's putting on an extra floor there. He's running up towers. He's making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a nice little quaint cottage, but he is building a palace 
and he intends to live in it himself. What a beautiful picture of the reality of every single Christian. And we can be quick to repent because we know if God planned for that to happen, like Ephesians 1 said before, the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before you had any kind of sin at all, before you were a twinkle in your parents' eye, before your parents even existed, you were going to be holy and blameless if you're a Christian. That's your reality. We can be quick to repent. Your sins that you've committed today and you'll commit uh, this afternoon, um, that's not surprising to God. In fact, Jesus died for those already. Nothing that you could do There isn't a heinous sin that you could possibly commit that if you are a believer, Jesus says, I paid for that. God has also told us about our final home. In uh, verse 30 of Romans 8, in the golden chain of redemption, that's what this little verse is kind of known to scholars, and he says, and those whom he predestined, he also called, those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The final state is constantly being in God's presence. There's no sin. There's no tears. We're with Jesus on his, or we're seeing Jesus on his throne with angels and the saints for all time praising him, and we're just joining in. There's no more regret, and there's no more sin, and there's no one from the Patriots organization. It's just going to be a wonderful, a wonderful place. That's the last Patriots joke. Um, I see a, a jersey in here. Oh, I saw a Patriots jersey, but I should stop. But heaven's going to be the most beautiful thing that you can ever imagine. It's going to be Yosemite. It's going to be Aruba. It's going to be a newborn baby. It's going to be Joe's KC all wrapped into one forever. And for the believer, for God's elect, that is your inevitable, eventual eternity. That's a God who promises those kind of things, who is powerful to make those things happen and ordains every single thing that happens in your life. That's a God that we get to come to every day. And we get to cry out for repentance, knowing that every one of our sins have been atoned for. It's beautiful. Repentance is just one continuing step of our eventual sanctification. So like Jonah, remember your sovereign, good, kind, compassionate God and repent. And I need to remember my good and sovereign and compassionate and kind God and repent. So repentance begins by hitting bottom. Repentance proceeds by God's plan and purpose. Finally, repentance is complete when right worship is restored. Repentance is complete when right worship is restored. Go to verse 4 in chapter 2. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look to your holy temple. He figuratively says that he's, he's looking towards the temple. He's in the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea. He obviously can't see this. He doesn't know, where, you know what direction he's facing. He figuratively says he's looking toward his temple. Why? Because that's where worship takes place. That's where God's presence dwells with his people. 
That's where people make sacrifices and sins are atoned for. He's looking towards that God. He wants his worship that he knows is going to take place in that temple. He wants that kind of worship to happen again. Look at verse 8. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. In verse 8, he acknowledges the human proclivity to worship something other than God. We want to worship something that we're in control over, something that, we've, that we feel like we've, we've created. And he could have been envisioning himself. He could have been envisioning the sailors. We know that they were pagans, and they cried out to their little idols and their gods, not to, to, to no avail. He could have been thinking of the Ninevites that he was going to, incredibly idolatrous nation. And he could have been thinking of his own nation, his own people. You know, an idol is, is something that is a, a good thing that we make into a God thing. Something that we allow to consume us. Something that we allow to control us. Something that at times we care more about than God. And this can be anything, really. It can be recreation, it can be substances, and it can be sex, and it can be comfort. It can be safety. But Jonah knew, he knew people. He knew his own heart. He knew what people are prone to. Idolatry comes incredibly easy for us. But look how he starts at verse, verse 9, and I, I, just, I just love this. So verse 8 says, Those who regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. What are the two, first two words of chapter 9? But I. Will you, will you say that, that, that with me? 3, 2, 1. But I. Let's try once more. 3, 2, 1. But I. Thank you. Jonah is making the definitive statement that he is going to be a God worshiper. He's not going to be like those other people. He's not maybe even thinking, I'm not even going to be like my previous self. I'm going to worship God. And I, I, know, I know that there are, are, are people in, in this room and a person on the stage that, that need to start making some but I statements. So you ready? You're going you're to say, hopefully you're going to say but I with me in a second. Okay, you ready? Some people place their, their hope and trust in their money, but I... Some people put their hope and trust in their jobs and abilities, but I. Some people put their hope in their children or future children, but I. Some people depend upon their good deeds and their religion to save them, but I. Jonah was resolved. He was resolute in being a worshiper who put all his hope and, his, and his, his trust in a sovereign God who has an abundant amount of steadfast love and patience for him. He says uh, in, uh, in, in verse 9, But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will, will sacrifice to you. He was going to praise the Father with shouts of, of, of joy and shouts of thanksgiving. He was going to pray with thanksgiving and proclaim the goodness of God publicly and passionately, as we see in, in chapter 3, when he actually gets to Nineveh. He said he's going to pay 
what he had, had vowed. He was an Israelite. Israelites made sacrifices and made covenants with, with, with the Father. He was also a prophet whom God specifically called and said, Jonah, you're going to be my mouthpiece. Jonah is renewing all these vows. He is riding the ship of his worship. He's bringing things back to where they should be. And I can't think of a better thing to do every Sunday but to pray in thanksgiving to our good and faithful God, to sing together like we were doing, like we're going to do, and like we do every week, to praise God with thankful hearts and to reaffirm our vows to him to be his mouthpieces, to be his hands, to be his feet, to be a church that makes his glory known in our city and in our workplaces and in our homes. You know, a a couple thousand years after Jonah lived and died, Jesus came on on the scene. Turn to Matthew. I'm going to go to Matthew 12. In Matthew 12, verses 40 and 41. Oh, I'm in Mark. There it is. Matthew 12, verse 40. Jesus references Jonah here. And he says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented of the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The implication is that these pagans, these idolatrous, violent, God-hating pagans in Nineveh repented when they heard this little puny prophet preach. But now the Messiah is walking the earth, healing everybody who comes near him, forgiving sins, and his own kinsmen who knew that a Messiah was coming, they weren't, they weren't repenting. Turn back a few chapters to Matthew 4, real quick. Chapter 4. Matthew records here in chapter 4 the, the very first words that, that Jesus spoke when he started his earthly ministry. And his first word that Matthew records is repent. Jesus was talking to anybody who would listen. He was talking to Jews, and he was talking to Gentiles, and he was talking to tent pagans. He was talking to temple priests. He was talking to people who were looking for living water, for people that, that wore old rags and opulent robes. He was, he was looking for the burden and who, people who were bearing heavy loads. And the same Jesus, he continues to speak. He continues to seek. He continues to satisfy. And he continues to save. Are you sinking to the bottom? Are you running from your God? Has God placed a call on you? If you're a Christian, the answer is yes. If you are running from that call, repent. Jesus' words to you are repent. Turn back, Christian, non-Christian. Right now, today, God is giving you just another opportunity to repent of your sins, Turn back to him. Leave everything behind. Your religion cannot save you. Your idols cannot save you. Salvation belongs 
to the Lord. God is here right now. His presence is here right now. And he wants to put his, keep you in his presence. If you want that, if you want to be in the presence of a faithful God, a supremely sovereign God, that can happen today. Don't waste another moment. You don't know about tomorrow. God didn't promise us another day. He didn't promise we're going to make it to our Super Bowl parties here. If you've never repented of your sins, if you have never given everything you are to the Father, today is your day. We would love for that to be your story. That on February 3rd, at around 11.20, God grabbed a hold of you. If you are, all, if you are already a believer, and I say this with love and understanding, um, as one of the elders of this church, don't dare leave this room without repenting and turning back to your Father. Don't do that. In a moment, we're going we're gonna to take communion. Come to the communion table with figurative hands open, holding your feeble, hidden, habitual sins, holding your vain idols that you, have, you feel like you have created, that you are propping up. Give them to the Father. Let him rip those things away from you and fill you with himself again. Do that today. So the way that we take communion, um, there's going to be a couple pairs of people up here. Uh, go on, on the outsides of the aisle. Come back to, to the back, down through the middle. Break off a piece of the bread. Dip it in the cup. And we'll do that together. If, you've, if you are not a, a, a believer, today is your day for salvation. I would love to talk, for you, talk with you. I'm going to step down here. If anybody would want to talk about that, come talk to me, and we can take your first communion together. Let's pray.